urgent need for us to tackle the climate crisis. Yeah, so it's really a crucial decade. Impacts of climate change and the risks that these pose to our society. We need specific plans and actions to drive the CO2 emissions down in the short term. The climate crisis is the world's most critical challenge right now. Hello and welcome to the Sparks podcast series. I'm Zoe Hazeman. And I'm Jens Nielsen. And we'll be your hosts throughout the special edition podcast series brought to you by the World Climate Foundation and Jacobs. Come with us as we take you on a journey around the world to explore how different countries are tackling their climate challenges, sparking ideas and inspiration. From clean energy innovations in Scotland to sustainable buildings in Dubai, we'll be interviewing global green leaders, financiers and entrepreneurs about the policies, investments and innovations that are accelerating our progress towards a resilient and sustainable world. Our podcast hopes to educate and inspire, sparking real conversations with the intention to collaborate, act, commit to real change. The Asia-Pacific region is home to over half of the world's population, consumes over 60% of the world's energy, and consists of some of the fastest growing economies internationally. The region is also defined by its diverse spectrum of socio-economic and geographic conditions, along with similarly varied national priorities and policies. This complexity brings unique challenges to the region's energy transition efforts, especially in relation to balancing energy equity, security and sustainability. In this episode, we will explore how Asia-Pacific's diversity could also act as a catalyst for the net zero agenda and accelerate the transition through trade, knowledge sharing and collaboration opportunities. And we have the privilege to be joined today by the one and only United Nations Under Secretary General, Executive Secretary of the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and Pacific, or SCAP, Ms. Armida Salsia Alice Javana. And we're really honoured to have her here, and she's going to help discuss the actions necessary to achieve a clean energy future. So, Ms. Alice Javana, welcome and thanks so much for being with us here today. Really excited to hear from you. My great pleasure. If you can go ahead and set the scene for our listeners today by providing an overview of the Asia-Pacific region and its progress towards net zero emissions, outlining some of the biggest challenges and opportunities you're facing. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to be here uh, to join this conversation. To set the scene, Asia-Pacific region emits the largest volume of greenhouse gas or CO2, producing about 50% or half, or a little bit more half actually, of the world's or global CO2 emissions, and it's growing annually. So for example, a record, this was pre-COVID or before COVID, the pandemic hit, a record of 36.7 gigatons of CO2 emissions was emitted from our region. As uh, everybody understands, the economy or GDP and CO2 emissions are highly correlated why uh, Asia-Pacific is the largest contributor, again, because the region is still the engine of global growth. Global GDP, let's say, in 2020, slightly before COVID, was uh, $85 trillion US dollars yet, just to put the perspective here. And the Asia-Pacific GDP, overall GDP, is about one-third of that. So Asia-Pacific economy is about one-third of the world economy. And the region has been engine of global growth, 
pre-pandemic because of the many emerging countries or emerging economies. Well, we have many, many emerging economies in our regions. So therefore also this economic uh, dynamics is there. Likewise, population. The region is home to over half of the global population. And in terms of the emission, 50% of the emission are driven by the energy sector. Also, uh, more than half of the energy mix comprises of fossil fuel, including coal. So therefore, this is why energy is a major source of CO2 emission. So in terms of CO2 emission in our region, as well as globally, 60% contributed by the energy sector. And moreover, uh, industries, of course, manufacturing and transport, aside from uh, sources of CO2 emissions from forest fire, waste management, as well as the agriculture sector. So there are certainly challenges in terms of this energy sector. If I can just refer yeah, as a reference using SDG, Sustainable Development Goal 7, which relates to energy. So challenges in terms of universal access is quite high, more than 90%, but still more than 150 million people still remain without electricity access across the region. Second is in terms of uh, the share of renewable energy in the overall energy mix is still quite low, significantly low, although th there is improvement, but way short of 30% renewable energy in the renewable energy mix for 2030. You know, the, this uh, challenge, the largest gains for renewables are found in the region's power sector for power sector generation. Third challenge is improvement in energy efficiency because that is also one of the goal. So the global rate of improvement in energy efficiency by 2030 has to be doubled. So for our region, there is significant improvement yeah, in terms of this energy efficiency. But again, there is still room for improvement further in terms of energy efficiency leading towards 2030 or what is required in 2030. And in terms of opportunities, because you also mentioned about the opportunities, there are certainly significant opportunities because, again, the region is the center of renewable energy development and deployment, with several countries in our region demonstrating leadership in investment, in its net capacity addition as well as production in terms of renewable energy. So therefore, if I can just relate that to the three areas, yeah, again, in terms of opportunities and access, especially the opportunities and further homework, is not so much in energy or electricity access because for getting there, but more on the access to clean cooking fuel, especially in rural areas. In terms of renewable, how to how to bridge yeah, between the demand and supply, whereas the supply is in abundance, but is quite geographic specific in terms of location, like solar, wind, hydro, bioenergy is quite geographic specific. Unit price has come down, but investment needs to be geared up, needs to be accelerated. So therefore, uh, how to match this between the supply in abundance, the demand is increasing, especially post-pandemic, but now maybe not, not yet, yeah? but post-pandemic, we will see demand increasing. So how we can match the increase in demand later on with more renewable. And one area 
which offer promise is in power generation. Yes. On one hand, it's clear that different countries across Asia Pacific are quite varied in regard to their access to renewable resources and their energy consumption needs. And uh, on the other hand, it's also clear that we're seeing rapid change in the energy sector as such. Given these factors, do you think there is now a stronger case for the development of an integrated energy system between countries within the region? And if you think so, can you elaborate a bit more what you think are the main obstacles and opportunities for increasing the integration? The last decade has seen a dramatic shift or significant shift, in this case decline, in the cost of renewable energy, particular wind and solar. For example, cost of solar PV dropped by 82% globally in the last decade, the past 10 years. Another example is concentrated solar power also seeing a drop of 47%. Likewise, onshore wind costs fell by 40% and offshore wind costs fell by 29%. So again, yeah, significant drop in costs of this renewable energy by way of example of solar as well as wind. The adoption of these technologies at a large scale is key to at this so-called energy transition. But on the other hand, renewable energy resources are not evenly distributed because they are quite specific yeah, geographically, uh, location-wise. Several examples in terms of countries in our region, Australia, China, India, Mongolia, Pakistan. These are countries that have vast land resources. They have impressive wind and solar resources as well. On the other hand, another example, countries such as Nepal, Bhutan, and Lao PDR have ample hydropower to meet their own needs and even more. They can even export their electricity, uh, which is generated by hydro. But then the question is, what about countries such as Bangladesh or Singapore, which have limited land areas, but at the same time, they also have ample demand for electricity. Let me also give a few more specific examples. Mongolia, this is a country with vast land areas and with the right infrastructure in place, right investment, of course, infrastructure, by establishing these uh, solar power generation could yield a series of benefits. And then the excess electricity produced could also be exported to its neighboring countries in East Asia. This low-cost electricity generated by solar could potentially be exported to its neighboring country in East Asia and at the same time also could contribute to climate change mitigation. Another example, this is on a sub-region basis. Several countries in sub-region in this context is Southeast Asia, ASEAN, in which ASEAN has this intra-ASEAN power grid connectivity. Uh, the countries of Lao PDR, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore have been trading power through this intra-ASEAN power grid connectivity. So therefore, at the same time, help increase the share of this renewable, in this case is from solar and wind energy sources, and also at the same time, simultaneously also mitigate, contribute to climate change uh, mitigation. 
So therefore, yeah, what regional cooperation of offers, yeah, what we see from several of these examples, this cross-border energy connectivity offering the potential of increasing the uptake of renewable energy yeah, for each respective country and contribute to climate change mitigation, but at the same time, this cross-border energy connectivity requires the creation of technical, legal, standardization, and so on, regulatory cooperation alongside the physical infrastructure investments such as power lines across the countries. And grid extensions have been the primary enabling factor for increased electrification and integration of renewable energy across the countries within the particular sub-region. But however, for small and remote communities in areas, for example, in rural areas yeah, with poor grid reliability or connectivity, then re renewable off-grid solutions play a significant role. For example, microhydro uh, in villages as well as biomass yeah, in villages in remote areas. And another example is solar PP in outer islands. Thanks for that, Ms. Alishvana. I mean, clearly lots of challenges on every level, but like you've pointed out, lots of opportunity there as well. Um, and I want to probe more into the sort of like the balancing between social prosperity um, and social equity, you know, aligning that that with um, economic growth, knowing that, you know, one of the key challenges is the hugely growing population uh, and what that means. And obviously the UN SCAP is really focused on promoting inclusive and sustainable economic and social development. So just interested in your thoughts on how can we balance that drive for regional economic growth with the rapidly growing populations against the need to reduce our impact on climate change? Certainly, a more balanced approach to economic growth, social inclusion and environmental sustainability is an imperative, is a must. Learning from COVID-19 pandemic, the pandemic has exacerbated the vulnerabilities, especially for the poor, the near poor, the vulnerable and other marginalized groups. If we see pre-COVID-19 situation, climate change, challenges related to limiting global temperature rise to well below the 2 degrees centigrade and as close as possible to 1.5 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial levels in line with Paris Agreement has been a real challenge. With a view, of course, the long-term view of target of net zero carbon emission by 2050. So this is uh, the target that all countries have to commit if we want to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement target of global temperature increase, yeah, not to exceed two degrees centigrade. During COVID-19, since last year, we have seen some respite in CO2 emissions because the pandemic has restricted activities and movements. So therefore, also economy is slowing down and in, in some instances last year even contracted. But now with the economy started to recover slowly, but surely we also see CO2 emissions have started to come back again, although not yet to its pre-pandemic level. At the same time, millions of people in the region remain exposed to a higher frequency and intensity of natural hazards from local swarms and earthquakes to cyclones and other exceptional events. Natural hazards is threatening a systemic global collapse, creating risks that often interconnect with one triggering another 
in a cascading of devastating events. These unrelenting pressure of climate change, yeah, coupled with pandemic-induced socioeconomic crisis, has further transformed the whole risk scape, including in our regions. So therefore, the challenge of, again, exacerbated further, yeah, the challenge of this economic growth with the population pressure, especially as the region is urbanizing rapidly. Now, yeah, at the current situation, more than 50% of the population of our region, Asia-Pacific, already live in cities and urban areas, and this number steadily increasing. So therefore, we need a balanced uh, development paradigm as well as at the same time to be able yeah, to mitigate uh, the climate change impact as well as this uh, three nexus, yeah? not only climate change now that we see climate change disaster as well as the health or the, the pandemic. So in terms of opportunities now for the recovery post-COVID-19, so definitely yeah, this is the momentum for us to recover better together. So let's seize this momentum. In terms of recover better, resiliency, inclusiveness, as well as sustainability, especially leading towards the green and blue economy or green and blue recovery. In terms of resiliency, how we can better prepare yeah, for this, again, this uh, nexus of climate disaster and health risk or health emergencies. Uh, we need also, because we talk not only country level, but as a region, how we can create a more efficient and effective and resilient regional supply chain. Because again, our region is the hub of a value chain, supply chain, the hub of manufacturing. So how to prepare or create a more efficient, more robust, more resilient regional supply chain. How also to promote trade and investment conditions for recovery, the so-called employment-led yeah, recovery. So you need trade to be moving, you need investment also to provide the employment opportunities. How to strengthen resilient transport and transit condition yeah, for the goods and the people to start flowing and moving again. In terms of inclusiveness, how also to ensure continuity in fiscal and financial support for the vulnerable people that have been impacted severely by the pandemic, by the crisis, including the hardest hit businesses, yeah? especially the SMEs, the small and medium enterprise, the informal sector worker, informal sector business and also the importance of scaling up the social protection coverage because again this is not something uh, taken for granted especially in our region many countries in our region have not have the social protection system in place so therefore when a crisis struck such as the pandemic some countries do not have even one element of a social protection system in place before they have to really uh, put up in a ad hoc manner, social assistance, and so on and so forth. So we should take the opportunity to scale it up and to set up social protection system in place. And in terms of sustainability, the green and blue recovery or green and blue economy, so this is the direction yeah, that we, we need yeah, to go as a region as well as the country level, how we can embed long-term sustainability 
starting with the COVID-19 policy response, so all these stimulus packages and so on, as well as how to incorporate environmental sustainability into the private sector, into the investment processes, the business investment processes, as well as the investment itself. The green and blue investment, whether public investment as well as private investment. Several examples is investment in clean energy, so directly related to our topic, which is the renewable clean energy, as well as another example is investment in climate resilient infrastructure. Therefore, we need to evolve from, let's say, the so-called BAU or business as usual towards sustainable investment and business opportunities as well. Yeah? So it's not only the government-led recovery, but also how the private sector-led recovery or contribution. Therefore, we need to have this whole government, whole society, yeah, whole stakeholder approach, including for us to march towards the sustainable development models. Uh, but aside from that, let me add yeah, one more aspect perspective, which is equally important, which is the need for us as individual, as society, community, to change our habit, our behavior, especially in consumption, lifestyle, to be more environmentally friendly, to be uh, not to be excessive yeah, in our consumption, how to also promote and uh, not only promote, yeah, but implement this 3R, recycle, reuse, and reuse as well as uh, scale-up solutions, such as nature-based solution, circular economy with its practical solution. I think those are great, good solutions for us to lead us towards a more sustainable lifestyle. I couldn't agree more with that last comment as well. And I think what you've highlighted there is the vast opportunities, ideas and solutions for all levels, you know, starting with government at a regional level, at a country level, down to the private sector, that really everybody has a role in making change in this space as well. Do you see progress happening like at the government level? Are things, you know, what's the are things in motion already? What's kind of like the rate of change um, that's happening now already in terms of the action being taken? What I see is evolving and starting to pick up is actually progress, starting with awareness, because progress is not possible without the awareness. So the awareness and progress and the push actually comes from the community. NGOs, yeah, the youth, the younger generation, because of their awareness yeah, that they would like to see a better world, right? A more sustainable world. They understand the impact of climate change, yeah? Although we do not feel it immediately, maybe we reveal it when disaster struck, more intensified, yeah, more severe and so on, but once in a while, right? But uh, they understand this in the longer term, longer horizon, yeah? This will impact, especially the youth. So they are the one yeah, that actually galvanizing the support, the voice and so on, including pressuring the private sector, pressuring the government and including in, at the global level. Yeah. So in that sense, uh, there is tremendous progress. But how government responds, I think many governments also have, have been responding. Yeah? One indication, or several indications for that matter, we've seen that several countries have renewed their climate change commitment. Several countries, if I can just mention, such as Japan, Korea, yeah, they pledge yeah, they're committed to achieve net zero carbon emission by 2050, right? 
which is also the global commitment. China 2060, China uh, commit to have peak of their CO2 emission by 2030 and after 2030 started that decline until net zero CO2 emission by 2060. And many countries follow suit. This is our homework here. Yeah. All countries have this commitment already. I think it's in the works. So let's see at the upcoming COP26. We'll see how progressive uh, countries have taken up their commitment on this climate change. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. With uh, contributors such as air pollution and the greenhouse gas emissions being the root drivers of climate change, Ms. Alicia Barna, can you tell us how ESCAP are tackling this to help protect both the population and the planet from the negative impacts. ESCAP is working closely with governments, our member states, to promote uh, transformative actions in our region, including on air pollution. So our support with member states is in the areas of first is raising public awareness. This is very important because without public awareness and without understanding at all levels, then it will be very difficult to promote and facilitate actions, again, in the issue of the urgency of climate change, likewise in the issue of pollution or air quality. Second, ESCAP also enhanced cooperation among the member states or among countries in our region. In 2019, so two years ago, member states requested ESCAP through ESCAP resolution on strengthening regional cooperation to tackle air pollution challenges in Asia and the Pacific. So key issues yeah, of that resolution. Why is it important? Why I take this up? Yeah, because this is member states that ask ESCAP to support them by facilitating the voluntary exchange of experiences or share of experiences among the countries, including promotion of voluntary scientific and technological cooperation to tackle air pollution in our region as well as to facilitate the collection and dissemination of information and a study yeah, related to air pollution in the region. So therefore, it can support policies, policies of the countries as appropriate. Of course, taking account yeah, of the expertise that ESCAP has. So in this regard, let me share one concrete example by way of project yeah, that we are doing to support a member state or countries in our region. We have the so-called GEMS project. GEMS is a geostationary environment monitoring spectrometer project. Yes, it is a little bit technical. But basically, this project is to mitigate air pollution by monitoring air quality data from space and ground network. So therefore, we can map out so all this air quality across the region, across Asia-Pacific, and then we can identify what are the sources of air pollution in each specific, let's say, areas or particular areas of a subregion of a or a subcountry. Yeah? Again, bearing in mind that air pollution is transboundary in nature. So some areas of a particular subregion, for example, South Asia, yeah, a lot of air pollution in that particular area comes from agriculture residue burning. Southeast Asia, for example, until a few years ago, yeah, a lot of the CO2 emission or air pollution, including air pollution, comes from forest fires, fires in peatland and so on. Uh, in other areas, a lot yeah, of the air pollution, also the CO2 emission, comes from industrial sources, manufacturing. 
support from transportation in urban areas. Yeah. So there, this is different sources depending on uh, the areas yeah, and so on so forth. So therefore, these gems map out all this to enable also to have very comprehensive information, yeah, real time. So therefore, we can feed the latest information to the respective government, including yeah, not only government in the sense of national government, including to cities in our region. So for the cities, for the government to be able to come up with a specific targeted policy to address this air pollution and at the same time also, of course, uh, CO2 emission. Thank you. And so one question, thinking about the future. So Asia Pacific countries see, a real, you know, there's a real spectrum of challenge when developing a clean energy future. And policy and progress has been ramping up in recent times with clean forms of electrical power generation at the top of that list. But how, if you're looking into your crystal ball, how do you see the next 10 years of the energy transition panning out? Acceleration in the energy transition reflects an alignment of clean energy economics and at the same time also with the global commitments on decarbonization and sustainability. So definitely we need breakthrough not only on the technology landscape and in new policies, but also in what concrete projects yeah, that can be financed to support this energy transition. So in this regard, I think uh, there is a good progress in the sense or good development in the sense uh, we see that appetite for funding of new coal-fired power plant project is declining, which is good news. But at the same time, how we can have more investment in this uh, renewable or clean energy. So therefore, the key elements of this energy transition is, again, we need this accelerated shift as well as investment in energy technology and the respective infrastructure. Again, reiterate the points of renewable energy, how to also achieve energy efficiency and the importance, if we talk about renewable energy, the importance of energy storage because we will not be able to scale up renewable energy because of their nature. We need also to develop and to have the technology capacity and uh, the infrastructure in place for this energy storage. And equally important is the integration of digital technology into the energy infrastructure. Uh, another element here yeah, for this energy transition is the transition from fossil fuel, including coal, yeah, as the backbone of the energy system, to one dominated more and more by cleaner energy, including, of course, in this case, renewable energy. And the development of the industry that goes with that, uh, which uh, again, uh, now we see is picking up, for example, the industry of electric vehicle, also the industry that supports uh, the development of hydrogen energy, the industry that supports the development of smart grids. Yeah, this is for renewable energy, the use of blockchain technology, and so on and so forth. So, therefore, we hope going forward, yeah, long term towards the net zero emission of 2050, that's the eventual, the ultimate target, we could have this energy transition yeah, eventually leading to energy transformation, hopefully by 2030 leading to 2050. 
So therefore, definitely this needs to be undertaken by countries in our region and for each respective countries to also have the key milestone of this energy transition for its eventual energy transformation. So our milestone is of course 2030 uh, SDG in which uh, the target, the global target is we have to have 30% of uh, renewable energy in our energy mix. In 2050, the ultimate target is for all countries globally to have reached net zero carbon emission by that time. So on a personal level, Ms. Anna if it's okay to ask, how do you personally feel as a global citizen um, that we as society as a whole globally be able to successfully address the climate emergency and stick to that 1.5 degree pathway that we know is so important? How are you feeling about that? Well, now... Uh, not that optimistic, uh, to be frank. I'm really, you know, personally very interested, and I'm sure our listeners would be genuinely as well, and, you, you know, your personal view on this. My personal opinion, I'm not yet uh, that optimistic at this point in time. Why? Because uh, we are still far short, not to mention target of 2050, this net zero carbon emission by 2050, even even the 2030 target. The 2030 target in terms of SDG, a renewable energy target, again, I mentioned earlier, right? 30% of uh, the total renewable energy mix. Some countries, I think a little bit ahead because of their commitment, investment, innovation, and so on and so forth, right? Already uh, gearing towards that end. But at the same time, for this country, the big countries, yeah, the energy needs is also immense, right? Because population, because economic activity, so on. So uh, a little bit of a challenge to catch that, to catch up with that particular commitment or target. And then we have also a tier of countries, again, in our region, many middle-income countries, many emerging countries, right? Because they are at the upward trend, yeah, going in their economic development. Of course, uh, COVID-19 uh, put a little bit break, yeah, but I mean, if we see the trend, is upward trend, yeah? So a little bit also a challenge, right? At the same time, you have to have a reliable energy supply and so on, and uh, the population growing, economy growing, and how to catch up with renewable energy, yeah? It, it's not cannot be matched immediately. And the third tier is, uh, again, uh, several countries are quite a bit lagging behind. Yeah, of course, these countries need to also catch up yeah, in terms of energy access and all that, right? Cooking, fuel, and so on. So we have a different set, yeah, different set of countries. And if we want to push the renewable energy, it's rather challenging. But at the same time, always, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, if there is a challenge, there's always an opportunity. Never a challenge without opportunity, right? If there is a challenge, if there is a problem, if there is COVID, if there is pandemic, always opportunity, yeah? It's a matter of how you can see the opportunity and how you can seize the opportunity and how you can bring, bring uh, the respective players together. Again, the, this awareness thing, yeah, very important. And if you are government, how you can create the enabling environment? So it's a matter of that, yeah, I see it, yeah, uh, which is not easy, not easy. But then again, what I mentioned also earlier, the push comes from this younger generation, the push comes from the NGO, the push comes from the academia, the thinker and so on. And then the awareness started to sip in yet yeah, to the private sector, still maybe in the advanced country, that's fine, still uh, with the fund manager. But 
if the push starts pushing harder and harder and it will permit yeah, to everybody including other countries our region i mean the developing countries and the emerging uh, countries as well so if we see this as an opportunity i think the entry point is if we see or if we could present this for example the need of renewable right if we could present this as an opportunity if we could present this also as investment opportunity business opportunity then government whether developing whether emerging whether what country they would rush into yeah second is technology because there are uh, I'm, I'm not expert just referring yeah to the conversation from the expert second is technology technology there are certain details in the technology that you need also to work on that it's not something automatic oh we want renewable energy okay fine we invest and it's not like that because renewable energy you have this power grid needs to be quite specific smart grid yeah because of this uh, storage issue and so on and so forth so you you need also to solve that and you need maybe a certain um, transfer of technology arrangement to support right the scaling up and all that again the bottom line is as shown by the cost structure yes uh, falling down right significantly and so on this is an opportunity one last point is the geographic location specificity of the renewables renewables is not something okay i want to buy and create the factory here and that's it no uh, renewables is solar that you need a certain in technical term yeah the sun irradiation intensity such that then you can have the solar pv right uh, in place uh, wind energy you have to have a certain wind intensity such that you can have this windmill right the location is quite specific likewise energy from wave current undercurrent and so on is specific location wise so i think if you can plan that such here is the wind farm here is the solar farm and that kind of thing and then you interconnect with the grid that's is key and uh, for these countries oftentimes the supply and demand does not quite match uh, immediately the supply is abundance in certain country a but their demand is for electricity is actually not that much uh, the demand of electricity is uh, much more in countries with a more developed economy more population that kind of thing can we have this mix and match so therefore this regional electricity power grid system across country within a sub-region but then you have to have this cooperation you have to have this harmonization you have to have this standardization you have to have this electricity market right it needs to be developed but the benefit is that the countries the respective countries can significantly accelerate their renewable energy intake and therefore the renewable energy mix also can be significantly increased if they have to do it on their own within their respective own country uh, it's not possible so this is the basic idea of this regional power grid system. Fantastic. Thank you. That was, um, that. unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this episode. But I, I can't thank you enough. It's been such an insightful discussion. I've learned so much. Super interesting and it's a super important. You have stage. such an important job and huge challenges ahead, but very exciting. So thank you so much. My, my great pleasure. And thank you to our listeners who have joined us today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have any questions or comments or would like to get in touch with us and or our guests, we would love to hear from you. And we've included details on our podcast landing page on how to get in touch. Until next week. Bye for now.